everyone, welcome to Cinemus, the podcast that's normally dedicated to discussing films found in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. But not today. Today marks yet another entry in our Not 1001 series, which are episodes talking about films not included in that book that we feel deserve a little attention and a shot to get on the list of undeniable must-see movies. I'm your host, Mike Emmel, and I'm totally geeking out because I am joined for tonight's episode by one dynamite pal, Mr. Jeffrey Crisp. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Glad to be dynamite. Yeah. Jeff, this is your very first appearance on the show. I think it behooves you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, absolutely. Hello, I'm Jeff, a sentient mass of flesh that vaguely resembles a human, but society has allowed me to stay because I make a great quiche. (laughs) I run a startup animation and game studio, and if you like words being formed in somewhat coherent sentences, follow me on Twitter at Joofaloof, that's J-O-O-F-A-L-O-O-F, where you can also keep up to date on anything that I am making or my studio is making. We also have a Patreon for a game that we are making, so follow me on Twitter if you'd like to find out more about that. And as a side note, I'm very excited to have you on because you have the most beautiful radio voice I've ever heard in my life. Give me five minutes and I can fix that. (laughs) Now that we go off mic. Welcome to the show, Jeff. And welcome to everybody listening. We hope that you enjoy the show. And if you do, we have lots of other episodes that you can check out on our website at cinemus.com. We spell that C-I-N-E-M-U-S-T-S dot com. You can also find those episodes on iTunes, on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher. And for any updates on new content, you can follow us on the social media platform of your choice. Just search for Cinemusts. And if this is your very first time listening, a very special welcome to you. We hope to hear your voices as we continue to build a community of film lovers who decide together whether or not the movies we discuss on the show truly are must-see films. We totally depend on our listeners to help us do that, so please feel encouraged to share your thoughts on the movies we talk about through any of those previously mentioned platforms or by emailing us at cinemus at gmail.com and most of all through our listener polls. Now, if you're new and you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's not a problem because before we get rolling with tonight's show, we have got to review the poll results from our last show. So two weeks ago, Ezra Smith and I discussed two perennial cyberpunk slash science fiction classics, Blade Runner and Akira, featuring another amorphous blob of flesh, not unlike Jeff. He might be related to me. (laughs) Uh, And our listeners have decided if those two truly are must-see films. Uh, If you're new to the show, the way that we determine that is very simple. We vote each movie into one of three categories based on recommendation. So Jeff, can you explain what those three categories are and what the criteria for each is? Absolutely. So we have Cinemust, Cinetrust, and Cinebust. Cinemust is you're at the top of a mountain, you want to shout to the heavens and tell everybody what a great movie you have just seen. Uh, Cinetrust is... Maybe a little bit lower down that mountain, you found a bar where you know a couple of people, and you say, like, hey, you might have a movie here. You should probably go see it. Lay your eyes on it. And then Cinebust is, it's a movie maybe I like watching, but I don't know if I can, you know, go to this mountain again and, you know, recommend it to anybody. Very good. I... I so love the different metaphors everyone uses to explain the categories. It's one of my favorite things about doing this show. I just have a fascination with mountains. All right. So with that in mind, Jeff, uh, Blade Runner and Akira, how do you think those two movies fared in the polls? Best guess. I think they both probably did. Cinemust, maybe Blade Runner being a Cinetrust. Ooh, you don't have a lot of faith in Blade Runner, huh? Well, I feel like it was... To a very specific audience, but... 
well, you're wrong. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> uh, by by a very hefty landslide, Blade Runner has been voted a cinema must with 77% of the votes going towards it. Ooh, wonderful. So almost, I, I'm kind of with you. I was worried that uh, the pacing of Blade Runner, which we talked about, would maybe be a deterrent. But no, it's, its status as a legendary science fiction movie has won the day. It is now officially a movie everybody has to see. What about Akira, Jeff? How do you think it did? I imagine Akira did a cinemust. You would be right. With, oh, great. With a, a, a much closer race, but with 54% of its votes, Akira has been voted a cinemust. Oh, that is pretty close. Yeah. And, and as a side note, this was our best attended poll yet. So thank you to everyone who voted so much. We really appreciate your votes, and especially to everyone who left comments to explain why they voted the way they did, uh, which we actually want to read some. So let's start with the comments for Blade Runner. Jeff, what did people have to say about Blade Runner? This first commenter said, Blade Runner is boring in 2018 when next to Avengers or Fast and Furious. Most movies today are just used to be part of the It crowd conversation at work or online i.e. superhero movies or Star Wars, and much less so the center of conversation like Get Out, Annihilation, or Mother. Blade Runner isn't a blockbuster, it's a mind blower. Awesome tagline. Thanks to that listener for writing in. Uh, Our second comment from Blade Runner is actually a quote from the movie, so we thought it behooved us to do uh, a sort of masterpiece theater section, and I will do my best Joe Turkle, and you will be playing the role of Harrison Ford. This listener commented, She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can I not know what it is? And scene. That was a beautiful Harrison Ford. Thanks. I was kind of hoping you'd overact with it. Oh, well, I don't know. (laughs) No, you're good. So those are the comments for Blade Runner. Uh, For Akira, we had a couple more. Jeff, what did people have to say about Akira? Akira is the Bible of anime. Every anime that I've seen reminds me of something from Akira. Which was a point I kind of made that... uh... I found Akira to be a touchstone in my limited experience with anime, so I appreciate that listener having my back. Another person commented, All right, I'm convinced. Akira is a must-see. You guys convinced me on Kanada and Tetsuo's characterization, and even though some things about the narrative don't work for me, I can't deny the beautifully insane production and how important the film is to the genre. So, very well said. And uh, lastly, we have another listener who just left a quote from the movie. Jeff, would you mind? So that's what everyone had to say about why they voted the way they did. Thank you so much to everybody who voted, and especially to everybody who left those comments. We love reading them on air, so keep them coming. Episode by episode, we love to read them off. So that poll is now unfortunately closed. Those results are locked in, but it's great news because Blade Runner and Akira are both now officially movies that everybody has to see. So while that poll is closed off, this episode is opening up another one that gives us a chance to vote two more movies either onto or off of the definitive list of must-see movies. So before midnight on June 2nd, make sure to go to cinemus.com, find the post for this episode, it's episode 13, and give us your thoughts on the must-see status of the movies we're going to talk about right now. Jeff, you are our nerd king for this episode, and as such, you have chosen the movies that we're going to be talking about. Can you tell the listeners what they are, and more importantly, why you chose them? Yes, I am the Nerd King. I'm regal and such. Anyway, so, I chose these two movies because they are... They they have rep, uh, video game uh, references. Um, they, they have a theme of it. And I very much like video games, and I rarely think about movies. So I figured this would be a great crack at me uh, putting my critical thinking skills to use. 
These are both movies marked by impressive racing sequences, too. There's a nice connection there. They do have that, yeah. So, to anyone who's new for the show, how this is going to play out, we are going to take a little chunk of time to do a spoiler-free general impression section. We're going to give plot summaries for what the movies are about, and both of us are going to vote them into one of those three categories we just talked about. We're going to vote them a Cinemust, a Cinetrust, or a Cinebust. And we're going to give three reasons why we voted the way that we did. From there, we need to move into spoilers, talk about each movie one at a time so that we can back up that stuff that we said about them with specific examples from the movie. So we'll let you know when that's coming. But for right now, let's just do a general overview, spoiler-free. And it falls on me to summarize Wreck-It Ralph. So Wreck-It Ralph is an animated movie from 2012 from the Walt Disney Corporation, who we love and fear. Uh, it is about an 8-bit arcade character named Wreck-It Ralph, who is actually the bad guy in the game he lives in. He's basically the Donkey Kong figure who wrecks the building, and Fix-It Felix Jr., who the game is named after, gets to fix it. So Ralph is tired of being the bad guy, he's tired of being alone and underappreciated, so he sets out on a quest of self-realization and to prove his self-worth, and he basically winds up entangled in a couple of other video game worlds. And uh, that's basically the plot summary. Jeff. What do you think of Wreck-It Ralph? What, how would you vote it? Oh, I found this one delightful. I gave it a Cinemust. Cinemust. So this is a movie you think everybody has to see. Oh, absolutely. It's a Disney movie. Why not? <laughs> okay. Uh, you need to give three reasons why you vote that way. Do I have to? Okay, yeah. All right. So the three reasons I gave is I, I love this movie because you have a lot of references without the story relying upon any of the references to tell the story. Um... As with many Disney movies, you also presented an important life lesson in an endearing way, and, you know, they're known for that, and I think it's great. I like this movie because it, uh, it worked as a video game movie because it was video game adjacent. It wasn't necessarily based on any sort of video game. Um, and, you know, it's using the games as a theme to tell the story rather than try to tell a game story, as I said. Interesting. Okay. That's a, good, that's a cool take on video game movies. Mike, what uh, what did you think about Wreck-It Ralph? What did you give it? I'm also going to vote this a Cinemust. It's it's maybe a little lower on the cinema scale for me. I don't, I'm not quite to that point where I need to shout oh, it from the rooftops. Bold. But, like, who wouldn't I recommend this movie to? Like you said, it's it's perfectly delightful. Um, my three reasons why I'm voting it Cinemust. One, it, it presents an existential crisis that kids can understand and that adults can relate to. So it's, like you're saying, it, they, they make these movies to kind of be for everybody. And that's kind of hard to do. Uh, secondly, I think this is an incredibly well-realized virtual world. There's a lot of rules to this movie that I think are very expertly handled and presented and make for a pretty tight movie. And thirdly, I think that Wreck-It Ralph has a, has a well-balanced cast of characters that tell a tightly plotted story through their interaction. So that's that's kind of like your first point that this is a game this is a movie with a lot of game references, but they're still telling their own story and utilizing them. Yeah. In a definitely in a pretty cool way. So high praise for Wreck It Ralph. We both think it's a movie that everybody has to see. Uh how about we move over to Ready Player One, very recent movie. Jeff, what's that about? Yeah, so Ready Player One is set in the future sometime in the 2040s, where you have our Protagonist Wade Watts, a almost superhero-sounding gentleman who wants to uh, play in this virtual reality world called Oasis. And he is such a fanatic about games and references from the 80s and pop culture. He uses this knowledge to go through puzzles left behind by Halliday, who was the Oasis's creator. 
uh, to find the big prize at the very end, all while battling a evil corporation called IOI. So, Mike, what what did you think about this movie? What did you give it? My my thoughts about Ready Player One are are already well documented on the site because I wrote a review of it when it first came out. This is the first movie we're discussing on the podcast that is actually still in theaters. I like Ready Player One. I think it's a fun movie, but I'm voting it a Cine Trust. My reasons for doing that: number one, like the nostalgic references this movie has to pop culture are really fun. It's a really entertaining experience. But my second point is that I don't think the movie makes a big statement about or with those references. Uh, And my third reason is I just don't feel like this movie elevates itself beyond being a fun popcorn movie, despite it being founded on very interesting concepts. Uh, We kind of have to go into that in spoilers, but... Uh, this, this was well documented in my review. I think there's a lot of cool ideas in Ready Player One that only get about two thirds of the way executed on. So that's just me, though. How about how about you, Jeff? How would you vote Ready Player One? Mike, I was about five seconds from giving this away. Cinnabuster rhymes, but I <laughs> I do think that this movie is genuinely fun. It just has some issues with it, so I gave it a Cine Trust. Um, the reasons for that is. It, Kind of as you were saying, you know, the visuals are fantastic. It has a lot of fun references. Uh, we'll we'll get back into more of that in the spoilers. Um, the plot, however, seems like it wants to make multiple bold statements, and I don't feel like it executes on any of them, kind of like what you were saying. Um, in addition, some of the characters, they're, they're really bland. Cookie cutter, vague backstories. Um, I feel like they don't elicit any sort of connection with the viewer. I was bored. <laughs> Interesting. I, w- I was super bored. Just I couldn't connect with any of them. Interesting. In a movie designed to be a roller coaster. Okay. Well, we we will have to get into that when we get into spoilers. It's kind of it's kind of no fair to ruin it all here. Uh, real quick before we move on, though, we both vote Ready Player One a sin of trust, which means we feel this is a movie that a certain group of people would enjoy. What is the group of people you would recommend the movie to? So. If you are just wanting to find a movie uh, and watch a movie that just has uh, references that you can you can spot and you can say, yeah, I know what this is about. And it, uh, if you like fun action sequences without having to really put too much thought into anything, this is a movie for you. I'm, I'm kind of the same. That sounds that sounds mean because everybody puts thought into their movies. But yeah, I, th- I think this is for the group of people that are capable of not overanalyzing things because... When you do start reading into some of the things it says, it becomes very problematic. But for anybody who is just there for a great time at the movies, uh, it is it is a fun ride. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So we both had similar opinions of both movies, a Cinemust for Wreck-It Ralph and Cinetrust for Ready Player One. But we are just two drops in the ocean. So everybody listening, if you've seen these movies, make sure to go over to Cinemust.com right now and cast your vote of recommendation for these movies. If you haven't, you may want to stop here. We're going to move into spoilers so that we can talk very specifically about these movies, but it sounds like they are both very much worth seeing, so go check them out. If you don't care about spoilers, then keep listening, but yeah, let's get on with the discussion, and we will start with Wreck-It Ralph. I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. You can't mess with the program, Ralph. You're not going turbo, are you? Turbo? No, I'm not going turbo. Come on, guys. Is a turbo I don't want a friend or a medal 
or a piece of pie every once in a while? Is it Turbo to want more out of life? Yes. Ralph, Ralph, we get it. But we can't change who we are. And the sooner you accept that, the better off your game and your life will be. Hey, one game at a time, Ralph. So before we start talking about Wreck-It Ralph, I've got a question for you, Jeff. When we got together and decided we wanted to do this episode, you said you wanted to do video game movies. And I'm very curious why you settled on Wreck-It Ralph and this pairing in particular. What's your thought process? So, great question. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> so I, I'm a video game kind of guy. I love them, play them all the time. I have tried watching movies that are based on video games, and uh, usually they're bad. That being said, though, Wreck-It Ralph... Uh, it, it really had a formula to it um, that you know we'll we'll dive into a little bit more uh, that I feel really made it work as a as a video game related movie because it wasn't about something or it, about a specific game it was very much wanting to say its own story and it had its references in there but it didn't rely upon it at all you could have removed all of the references that you had with certain video games the story would have been the exact same. Which is one thing I find interesting is the movie is is basically Toy Story, yeah. Um, and I I think this is definitely up there in terms of video game movies. Uh, like you said, I really like the term you used. You said this is video game adjacent. This is not behooven to telling the story of the Mario Brothers or whomever. This is just a world set in video games. But that also makes it almost expendable. Like this could have happened. This story could have taken place in any other world and kind of have the same messages. But I think what makes it work is how tightly plotted it is and how well realized the world is. It kind of makes it fun. It's a side of video games that we hadn't really seen, especially in movies, because movies, to me at least, or video game movies, to me at least, were, were about that. It was beholden to, here is the Mario Brothers movie. Here's Mortal Kombat. Right. Uh, instead, it's like, here's our own video game character loosely based on other video games yeah and i think that's why it worked very well um usually when you and the, the problem is when you have a, a movie based on a video game it's it's hard to tell whether or not it did poorly because of the viewer itself or themselves or because of the creator think about it this way when you're playing a game you are not just watching a character go through a story. You yourself are the character playing through that story. You are experiencing everything that they are experiencing at the same time. And it's more personal because you're the one controlling. You're the one making decisions. Now, if you're watching a movie, you're just kind of along for the ride. And yeah, you can get connected with them on some certain level, but it's not as personal um, because you are also not, you're not actively taking a role in what they're doing. You're just watching them. This, this is interesting because we've already had this a similar conversation when we talked about The Matrix, that The Matrix was a movie about immersivity that was still a movie, but the, the best movies, like you're saying, kind of trick you into believing this is happening to you. They elicit right. an emotional response. And that's, to me, where Wreck-It Ralph steps right, is Wreck-It Ralph is not so much about taking you through the beats of the story, even though it's a well-plotted story, but it is, like I mentioned, there's a relatable crisis here that kids can understand mm. and adults can relate to. Um, it's basically a midlife crisis of, yeah. you know, who am I? I don't want to be what society or the program wants me to be. I'm going to break out. And that's 
that's the genius of Wreck-It Ralph to me is telling a good story first and making the video game stuff uh, periphery. Yeah, definitely. With, with Wreck-It Ralph, I, I don't know. We, we touched on this in the, the summary area, but all Disney movies have some sort of message that they're trying to get across. Or most Disney movies, I guess. I haven't seen all of them, so I can't tell you for sure. But, uh, yeah, with, with Wreck-It Ralph, I, I feel that it was very much trying to tell the story of what, it, what it's like to be a human. You've got, you've got Wreck-It Ralph, so you've got your character that just destroys everything. And that's kind of like being a person. Some days, you just destroy stuff. And all, all you can do is that. You make a pot of coffee and you drop it. And you have no real reason for dropping it. You just do it because you're dumb and a human. And uh, then you have days where you're fixing Felix and you're on fire at work. You're getting everything done. And then some, some days you're, uh, you're Vanellope von Schweetz. You're really trying to figure out your place in life. Understand who you are. And uh, again, I, I think that those three aspects are very much a critical point on who you are as a person, discovering who you are, and then coming to a realization of, you know, I'd rather be, or I wouldn't want to be anybody else but myself. Like, I, I'm all that I have. There's, there's one element of this. I, I find it heartwarming and also troubling. And I actually give Disney credit because a lot of their big message movies are like this. That that message, I, there's no one I'd rather be than me. Is, is a great message, especially yeah. for a family movie. But it is also couched between this idea that all the characters repeat, don't mess with the program. So be who you are, but don't upset the status quo because it will destroy the world. And the thing is, is I'm not totally saying like, oh, this is a garbage message because it's just teaching you conformity because... To an extent, that is also true. There are certain elements of your, your own personality that you do have to rein in in order to be a functioning member of society. Oh, yeah. And Wreck-It Ralph somewhat troublingly so presents those. But its genius is to focus on the right parts. That Ralph, in the end of the movie, becomes very happy to still be the bad guy, to still get thrown off of the roof with a smile, but he finds basically the silver lining that he can be lifted up in that moment to see his friend, which is what he really craved. He didn't want the medal. He didn't want to be the good guy. He just wanted someone to appreciate him. So, so basically what we're saying is Disney is like, okay, you're your own special person, uh, but you're also a drone in society. And, uh, but like, and we're going to make a lot of money off of you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I, I also don't think that it really does that too much because it, if I remember correctly from the movie, especially when it's dealing with Vanellope, um, they're very much saying that they're trying to get her to conform. But in the end, they don't. She very much does her own thing. She she realizes that, like, yes, there may be some aspects to it, but I don't have to conform completely. I can still right. be myself. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, I praise it for finding the middle ground because okay, yeah. I appreciate movies that do tell you to think outside the norm, but that sometimes leads to a harsh awakening when you get out into the real world and realize you cannot just do what you feel like all the time. And Wreck-It Ralph presents that on a literal level, that when Ralph does not do his job, it threatens the very existence of everyone else in his game. To be fair, though, they're kind of garbage people. They are garbage people. <laughs> I, I, like, I like how their design fits their personality, too, that they're so blocky yeah. and like restricted that yeah. it's almost... 
their movement matches their mindset of the binary between good guy and bad guy. Where even Felix in that in the beginning when Ralph crashes the party, he's kind of trying. Like mm-hmm. Felix is still pretty mean to him at that point, but he's willing to let him in and have cake. He knows he's a part of the game. Yeah. But stupid Gene. But they're but they're all they're, <laughs> but they're all also like stuck up rich and white. So maybe it's saying something else. <laughs> I I'd like to talk about Vanellope. This this all comes to my third point. I think that this movie actually balances a handful of characters really well. This is Ralph's movie, but the side characters contribute to side plots. Like everything pushes towards the climax really beautifully. Like everything is threaded really nicely. And I remember. I remember when this movie came out. In fact, I remember having this conversation with Anthony, who does our the top 10 shows. 2012 was the very first year we started doing those. And he had Wreck-It Ralph on his list. And we talked about Vanellope because based on the marketing, I thought this movie was going to suck solely because of Vanellope. And I like Sarah Silverman, but her her shtick of like loving pee jokes is, is all that the trailer was about. And I think it's the movie's weakest point. I think the movie plays a little too heavily into their like improvised name calling sessions that aren't even clever. But I mean, that goes back into being human. All, all we do is poo and pee. That's true. But <laughs> unlike you, I don't talk about it all the time. Oh, you should give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my wife's not listening. She'll dispute that. No, but, but, but anyways, all, all that to say like, I found that position reversed because I think Vanellope kind of becomes the heart of the movie. Like you're saying, you kind of have to take that with the humanity within her, that she becomes the emotional core and the, the really like the strongest one, the one that shows Ralph, it's okay to be you, but like recognize what's in your code. You know, all, all Vanellope wants to do is what she was made to do. She wants to race and she knows that it's within her and I, I feel that the strongest point of the movie is her discovering that her glitch is not a weakness. It's something that she can use, wh- which I think is what you're talking about when you say that the movie is finding that happy ground between stick to the program and be yourself, that she found a way to do both. Right. So so I want to give major props to Rich Moore, the director, to everybody involved for taking a character that could be just the annoying comic relief for kids and making her the heart of the movie. I think it's really impressive. The dynamic that her and Ralph had was absolutely endearing. I loved it so much. And also leads to like the most heartbreaking scene in almost any animated movie. Oh yeah. The top 10 anime betrayals when they were destroying the car. I teared up (laughs) and I've seen this movie a lot, but that, that plays not just to how well realized the dynamic is between them, that this is really a betrayal because they all they had was each other. But I even love the way they put it together. They shoot the scene like it's being censored. They don't show the initial impact of him destroying the car. It's like the same way we would treat it if somebody was getting like their head smashed in. Like they right, cut away yeah. to the reaction of Vanellope and it makes it so heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what what would you say is is King Candy? Mr. King Candy and all of this. What what is is he a human trait? Is he is he uh society yeah. in some sense? He in a way he he kind of is what I'm talking about. He's that unchecked ambition to say I will I will be myself and do whatever I want. And um the movie equates him with being a virus, which is harsh, but when you are not considering your role in the larger scheme and the responsibility you have to those around you, uh I think it's actually pretty accurate. And I like, I like that reveal, first of all, 
because it actually does come as something as, as a surprise. Oh, that, yeah. That yeah. King Candy is, in fact, Turbo, and he has been living in this Sugar Rush game for, what, like 20 years? Was it that one? It might have been. Yeah, he's an old, he's an old 8-bit character that yeah. has assumed control violently so he has pushed out the rightful heir in order to dominate this candy cart game yeah i like king candy because because he he kind of does that same thing he is the comic relief guy as a side question i was realizing this must be your favorite movie ever because you're a fan of the wordplay and the puns and uh king candy's got it in space oh oh yeah no it's fantastic (laughs) so i like i like that i like how he owns his his horrible puns but he he skirts a fine line for a while. He he's very antagonistic when we're introduced to him. He's like the the villain with the smile because he's very goofy. It's it's Alan Tudyk doing an Edwin Gwynn impersonation from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> so it's like the guy's evil, but he's always talking like this. Though it's he's difficult, still King Candy. <laughs> yeah. But he's like he bounces that line between being sinister and then when he's talking to Ralph and he's like, "I'm doing this because I need to protect." the citizens of the game, you you kind of believe him. And I like movies that do that, that make you sympathize with their villain a little bit. Uh, Psycho's the best of them. We talked about it in one of our episodes. But yeah, by, by the end, you kind of realize that's all bullcrap and he's only out for himself. So that's that's the, the trait he exemplifies to me is like almost pure selfishness. Oh, what, yeah. what do you make of him? No, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. When I see King Candy, that's very much a type of person that is very much a control freak. Everything needs to go a certain way, and if they don't have control over, you know, their life, kind of what's going on around them, they they freak out. They need to have some sort of uh, structure to what they're doing, and this can all come at any cost of, you know, trying to smear somebody else's image, like he was essentially doing with, with Menelope, maybe gaslighting in a sense a few different people like he was doing with everybody in the the candy kingdom of sugar rush what i kind of wanted from record ralph is for maybe him to have some sort of a redemption arc as well but he was the villain he ruined, he ruined two games yes yeah, like he ruined he ruined two games so him going out the way he did and <laughs> in a literal beam of light yeah was pretty good stuff. <laughs> well and the movie is also a little complex in the way that it handles that binary between good and bad, because there's a lot of bad guys, so to speak, in it. You've you've got Ralph who skirts the line. You've got King Candy. You've got the Cybugs that are that like th- they say a similar thing. They're a mindless horde. They don't understand their place and everything. All they do is is consume and take the spotlight. And I like that there are various degrees of villainy. Yeah, but between those three, it's not as complicated in its analysis of like what a good guy is because Felix is he's just a good guy. Like he's not only setting out to find Ralph for the good of his kingdom, but he does love Ralph. Like right. he calls him he calls him brother. I love the interactions they have with each other and especially in the the fungin when he yeah. Felix kind of gets to rant about like all of the crap he's had to put up with because of Ralph, but he's he's still a big enough guy that he'll he'll fix the card, he'll fix whatever he's the the good guy yeah and and i think felix had a great sort of character development because yes he was the good guy the entire time uh, he was always trying to fix things but i think near the end he i want to say that he realizes ralph's place and understands it even more towards the end like sometimes things are bre- being broken and you know that's fine it's almost like the movie is this admittance that we need conflict in our lives 
I mean, we are humans. We like conflict. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, we need Ralph to break the building so that we can fix them. Yeah. It kind of, it, like I said, it's it's this existential crisis that when you when you lay heavily into it is, like, actually really heavy and kind of depressing, but it, it's helped by, like, don't think about it that much. It's it's like a Pac-Man game. Like, yeah. Don't worry about what you put these characters through, that they're, they're worried about their very existence from an uncaring god if they don't <laughs> dance the dance of the puppets. It, it's It's very textbook Disney of... Uh, we're putting all these characters through hell, but hey, they're cute and adorable, and they got some funny dances that they do. Well, I, they're well-realized characters. Even Calhoun, who is another character that grates on me. I love her. From time to time, just because D- Disney does this, right? Like, people are hired because they do something on TV very well. So Jane Lynch performs this character on Glee who has no nonsense, who's very verbally acute. She knows how to string a beautiful sentence together, and say it all with a straight face so sometimes wreck it ralph does that one times too many i think for me the one is that the cybugs will tear up sugar rush faster than a hen hawk and a chicken coop full of crippled roosters but i mean like she's from heroes <laughs> duty that's that's yeah, just what her that, character that's is the though thing. that's the thing is it fits it's really cool to take like this call of duty master chief hero uh, and, mrs chief yes <laughs> excuse me and and actually like make her interesting like not just physically strong but also a fairly well-rounded character. I even like that the movie gives her that tragic backstory that haunts the her. The backstory that they gave for her was probably the best joke in the entire damn movie. Like when Dynamite Gal. Oh no 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 no! Not that. It's it's the it's when she walks through and she's going to Sugar Rush and Felix is like, "What's going on with her?" It's like she is programmed with the most tragic backstory. <laughs> <laughs> because there's there's no point in that, but it was it was just silly in its uh, it was silly in its execution, and it does it does attempt to humanize her beyond being just a gun, like she's not just an oh, awesome definitely. soldier. It it gives her a personality and something to struggle against, and it's so cute that she winds up with Felix. Yeah, no, it's great. I I love it. Well, let's. So we, we've talked a lot about characters. I kind of want to switch over to design. My second point was that I thought this was a very well realized virtual world that. Disney and Pixar do this in their best work amazingly in my opinion that they they always have these worlds that take take hints from reality so here we have video games we're we're aware of arcade games and things like that but they flesh out the interactions between them to create like this society with these rules in a way that really makes sense and also contributes to the plot so I kind of want to talk about those worlds and how they interact with each other because when we already kind of hinted at it that I like the Nicelander, which is the the world of Fix It Felix, is very old school blocky. The monorail is a adorable little train cart, yeah. um, and everybody moves in really jerky mo- movements because they're thirty years old. It's antiquated technology. I like that the movie is kind of commenting on the evolution of games as we move into, especially Heroes Duty. Oh yeah, yeah, Heroes Duty and Sugar. You know, it was. <laughs> I, I don't know, I might be overthinking things, but I, I was interested that they they gave the nice slanders that they're very blocky, stout kind of feel and design. But with Record Ralph and Felix, Fix It Felix, they were all very smooth, fluid. They like they they didn't have the same type of uh locomotion, I guess you could say. Yeah. I think it, I think that speaks to them being more well realized characters. Right. The nice landers. They they had they had more to think about and realize about who they were. I, I want to ask this because I'm, I like video games, but I'm fairly naive. I'm not very well steeped in gamer culture. Is is the commentary the movie makes about 
the shift to hero's duty a little too on the nose that when Ralph gets over all of a sudden it's this horrifying experience and he asks why everything when did everything become so violent and scary you know it's it's interesting I think video games have always been violent. It's just... <laughs> to the point, I I love the opening shot when they show Ralph, like, doing what he does and wrecking the building, and he picks the guy up, and he just, like, throws him across the screen. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they've always been that way. It's just the way that we have... The technology we have to design games and make them now, we get to make them not necessarily more realistic, but a lot more action-packed. And everything's kind of more story-oriented, like it's on rails, we... Climb the building, fight bugs, yeah. which which is like what the arcade game is too. But for some for some reason, there it feels like these these styles are almost the same. That Heroes Duty is just a more high definition version of what the arc what Fixit Felix Junior is, and it's kind of nice to see like games maybe don't change that much. No, they <clears throat> they definitely don't. It, yeah, it's pretty much the same. There's a problem. The Cybucks are destroying everything, and then. Uh, the Marines are Fixit Felix's juniors, multiples of them. So what about Sugar Rush? Does Sugar Rush say anything about the state of video games? So I would say yes, to an extent. So when you had a lot of older racing games, it was, again, very 8-bit. Some of the arcade games that you had, you were standing up and there was a wheel. Maybe you had a pedal that was down by your foot. And uh, it's... It didn't, they, they didn't really used to evoke the same sort of getting together <clears throat> and playing a game uh, back then as they, used, or as they used to do, kind of like how they do now. So, for example, um, Mario Kart. That's a fantastic example of a racing game that we have now where, you know, friends get to sit down, uh, swear at each other, become not friends immediately afterward. But, but during the time, they, they, they get to have a more robust experience, um, you know, more graphically updated just kind of fun compared to what you used to. And yes, like some of the uh, older uh, consoles and arcade games, they, they still had this, but not to really the same extent. You didn't have as many people um, that were able to play at once. It didn't evoke the same sense of um, connectivity with others. I think that's, I think that's my takeaway from it too, is Sugar Rush is, is the only world that kind of lays a little more into the interactivity angle that it's it's not just about a single player story on the rails that it's about like the way these racers interact with each other like there's a hierarchy to everything there's a royal family um i love the designs for all three worlds we talked about fix it felix jr is this awesome 3d update that still maintains the feel of like an old retro 8-bit arcade game Mm. but i like i like the very domineering sharp edges of hero's duty with the the ridley scott strobe lights and then i love sugar rush's oppressive cuteness oh disgustingly so (laughs) i i kind of like that the movie owns that it's kind of how king candy is with his puns but everything everything is a piece of candy it's it kind of we talked on last episode about akira and how i'd look at every frame and be like the amount of work that went into this one shot is giving me a headache designing the buildings of sugar rush like was equally giving me a headache because i'm like it was giving you a a sugar rush (laughs) yeah i was just like so impressed that people could take like gingerbread and suckers and build this vast world and they really deliver on it because you're there for most of the movie but 
you see like every angle you see the castle there's like mountains when you get to the racetrack there's like a land of winter that's ice cream and stuff like it's yeah so much work went into sugar rush and i love how much they stick to their aesthetic and also just how inappropriate it is for every outsider who comes to it that the three people that come to this cutesy land are the bad guy from wreck it ralph and the hero of the first person shooter and everybody's equally disgusted and confused, <laughs> but why is everything so, as you said, oppressively happy? Yeah. It shouldn't be this way. But uh, but it hides, oddly enough, the darkest ulterior motives. Oh, yeah. So uh, this this will go to my point of how Wreck-It Ralph had all these references without relying upon them to, to make the story and how, you know, they used video games as a theme. So when you're, when you're watching Wreck-It Ralph, you have your video game characters uh, like Zangief. You have Sonic that's in there. You've seen Dr. Eggman. You know, Bowser was even in there, and I'm surprised Nintendo lets yeah. them to do it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, whatever. It's Nintendo. Uh, but it never focused on them. They were really just a focal point to say, like, we're bad guys. Well, not Sonic, obviously, but the other ones. Yeah. You know, like, we're bad guys. This is what we do. But uh, when you actually get into the meat of the story, you're the game of Fix-It Felix Jr. That's very Donkey Kong or Rampage-esque, but without having to be that. Um, you know, Hero's Duty is any sort of uh, rail shooter, as you're saying, like Jurassic Park that we've seen. There's a Halo one that's coming out. You know, they, they just they have multitudes of these for all these different, you know, games and titles. And then Sugar Rush is, is you know, Mario Kart. Mm-hmm. It's essentially just that. I mean, there's other ones too, but in the same kind of style with the story that they're telling, you can understand that it's a video game world without them having to very much shove in your face. Like this is the video game that we're talking about. This is a video game that it's based off of. It's instead just saying like the theme is video games. Yeah. It, it kind of assumes, you know, stuff about video games already. I mean, in in the year of our Lord 2018, we pretty much all do. Yeah. I, I was really fascinated with, I mean, both these movies have something to do with nostalgia. Like, to me, that's the common through line is that these are very nostalgic movies. And I was interested how Wreck-It Ralph handled it because it it kind of assumes our affection for this old style of arcade games to the point that it it requests that we believe arcades are still flourishing and kids are, like, skipping school to come play in them. And it makes me sad because arcades right now mostly are just redemption games. Yeah. None of them are the the action-packed, you know, stand-up cabinets that we used to have. Uh-huh. But, like, right right from the get-go, the Disney Studios logo is an 8-bit. It has that kind of score, the dinky. And it, it really, like, lifts your heart up and makes you happy. But I, I was like, why why is this working for me? Why don't I feel kind of used, I guess would the word be? Like, sometimes with nostalgia it feels like things I love are being repackaged to be sold back to me so that I can just like consume them more. Uh, which let's be honest, this is Disney. That's absolutely what is happening. Um, so why, why am I complicit in it this go around? And, and what you said is, is the big reason for me that there, there is a semblance of originality. These characters are obviously pulled from worlds and video game characters that have real life corollaries, but they're well-rounded, they have their own aspirations and dreams, and it's a lot easier to guide those characters through a plot where they act as foils to each other, and then anybody who's a real-world video game character is kind of like a, a side joke, and it it kind of works a little better that it's not 
it's not the spotlight. It's not the reason you're there. The reason you're there is to work through this crisis with Ralph and Penelope, but hey, Qbert's here, and that's cool. Yeah. I've never played Qbert, but that's a funny joke about how he talks. Yeah. No, I, I, I think Wreck-It Ralph really does a, a great job with all of that. So I, I think one of the reasons why it works so well uh, with having these references in it is, yes, it will it will show you the character from another game, but if it has a reference to something, it's more like alluding to a different sort of game or a different sort of game style. So I almost feel that it's it's better for me as a viewer to go into that movie and watch it and s- instead of me saying like, oh, that's Sonic, or, oh, that's Zangief or whatever, I'm saying, oh, Wreck-It Ralph is based off of, like, Donkey Kong, or it's based off of Rampage. And it makes me feel better because I'm like, oh, I understand that that's where they took their inspiration from. I'm not just shoved something that I'm aware of already. And it's it's not, like, a, a very quick, um, I want to say, like, money grab, but it, it's not just saying, like, hey, do you get this? Do you understand this character? Do you Do you know what it's from? And then it just kind of goes away. I also would give them credit because even those kind of side jokes are threaded through a well-realized world, like I said. So the Sonic one is kind of what comes to mind most because that's that's a total exposition dump. There's a screen of him in the power surge socket, the game oh, yeah. central station, and he he's telling the audience, like, if they die outside of their game, they don't regenerate. So right. it's game over. So it, this is introducing stakes to us because this is going to be a movie where they are nothing but outside of their game. So there's actual real life stakes. But I, I like that that expo- exposition dump is handled in a creative way that makes sense in world because Sonic is a big deal in the world of video games. So I like that in the world of video game society, he's enough of a celebrity that they say they tap him to be like, hey, do you want to do this commercial or this public service announcement commercial for us <laughs> so that people will like be a little more on edge when they're not in their own games? Like, that's well thought out. It's not just lazy like Sonic walks by like, hey, if you right, die outside yeah. your game, like it actually works within the world that they've created. Right. And, and that happens like the Cubert the thing is great because that sets up the threat that what happens when a game gets unplugged. Yeah. Even if it doesn't mean erase, erasure from existence, it means a life of poverty and not having a place in the world. I, I very much liked uh, Sonic's addition into that movie just because it, it reminded me of, um, what was it, Captain America? And I, I think it was the Spider-Man, the Spider-Man movie. movie. Yeah. It's like, so you decided to have your game unplugged or you decided to go outside of your game. Like, what happens now? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I, I kind of want to talk about other other movies that are based on games have you have you watched any other ones I that mean, are kind of based off of it not not a ton i still haven't seen tomb raider which i hear was okay but the the ones that i have seen like we opened with they just never really wow me it's not that i hate them but there's very low expectations that come with a video game movie to me to me i'm almost starting to wonder like what the point is because video games are movies now essentially like yeah. like you mentioned they're they're these mind-blowing blockbusters that you can actually participate in so it's like not making sense to me to make like a straight up tomb raider game when the actual tomb raider game is its own you know 20 hour movie that you actually control yeah i'll i'll touch on a point that i i believe i brought up at the the very beginning of all this and that was if if it's the viewer the viewer's fault Versus the creator's fault of making this sort of game, or sorry, in making a a movie based off of a game. So, when you, when you're a, a movie producer, when you're a writer, 
and you decide that you want to let, let's say you're Uwe Boll and you want to make a movie that's based off of a game and then very suddenly you write a script and you're like yeah I'm just gonna throw this in the trash can and we'll see what happens I, I don't like Uwe Boll anyway but but so so when you're a creator you can't bind movies by the same sort of mechanic that a video game has. So, for example, if you're in a video game that has, like, a, a chest-high wall, but you don't have the mechanic to jump over it, you're obviously not going to make a movie where that's the same sort of problem. So you have to think about things differently, and you have to present things in a different way. And I don't blame any sort of movie creator for you know, trying to tell the story of the game, but in their own way, in a way that would make sense to us viewing a movie of like, this is live action. If there's a chest high wall, that person has to be able to jump over it to move on to the next area. Whereas in a game, we kind of give it a pass by because they're like, well, that's just how it works. That's the mechanic. But when we're, when we're watching the movie and we notice that it doesn't follow the game that we played, the game that we also took part in the story of, uh, I, I feel like a lot of viewers, are they dislike it because of that sense of nostalgia that they have because it's not what they did. They're, they're, watching, try, they're trying to watch somebody else's rendition of it that isn't the same. Yeah, I find this very similar to the age-old argument of the book versus the movie. It gets a little trickier with video games because visual, video games are also a visual medium, but you, you always have that issue, right? I love this book. They're turning it into a movie. I hate the movie. It's not what I saw in my head. Right. And that's, like you're saying, that's the difference of the medium. Print leaves a lot up to you. That's a much more interpretive obstacle, reading a book versus watching a movie, which offers its own interpretive possibilities, but you have a lot more set criteria now. All of a sudden, this character in the book that has a couple of lines describing them has millions of readers imagining the way this person looks in a different way. Now you make the movie, you cast an actor, they look one way, which means that maybe syncs up with how some readers imagine that character, but there's millions of people that that's not their version of that character. Right, yeah. So exactly, same thing with video games that now you you move over, you're trying to see one person's interpretation of this thing you love, but it's not going to be your interpretation, and it's usually... You're going to push back against that. It is very much, I'm, I'm glad that you brought a book versus a movie because it's very much the exact same thing. It, Adaptations are hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. As, so th that's As why, we will continue to discuss. <laughs> that's why I, I, although I don't like most movies based on games, I don't blame the creator for it because it's, it's not their fault that I am such a stuck up prick and have to have something a certain way. That's not to say that, you know, maybe their movie still wasn't bad, but I don't think that viewers allow them the chance to tell the story in their own way. Well, and, and maybe I'm off base here, but I feel like it's tricky because I feel like those like straight story adaptations of video games. So I haven't seen it, but let's use Tomb Raider as an example. Like it's an it's an adventure game that was inspired by adventure movies. Now it's an adventure movie again. I feel like those are primarily made for people without access to the game. Maybe a better example is, let's say, somebody decides to make a game of God of War. Now, anybody that doesn't have a PlayStation can get the God of War story experience. So the movie is kind of made to be like, hey, here's, here's this thing people love that I know you're kind of interested in. Let's repackage it so it's more accessible. Here you go. But the problem is, 
the people who are going to come out in droves yeah, to see yeah. the God of War movie are the people who have played the game. Yep. So it's it's I feel like these movies are made for a certain audience that winds up being the people who don't support it hardly at all. Yeah. No, I I think I can agree to that. And it's 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 interesting because I found that when you have a movie based on a game but the the movie uh, or maybe TV series or whatever it is, they don't follow the main character that you play. Those generally do better. So they're telling a like the same, well, not the same story, but they're they're telling a story in the same universe, but kind of in their own way. So like Pokemon. Pokemon is a great example. When you play the Pokemon games, you play as like Red or Blue or whomever with the older ones. And you, you go through, you find your cute little monsters, you fight them with each other, you go through the story, so on and so forth. But when you have like the the tv series when you have the movies they're based off of like the character that you're watching is not the character that you played as um so you're able to see their struggles and kind of what they're going through and critically they still don't do well um as well as like other movies but to a lot of viewers they're they do phenomenally and i think that it goes back to they're not invested in the character because they played as the character they're invested in the character because it's in a world that they love for sure which wreck ralph has in spades oh yeah definitely and it's and it's it's a world you love but it is also something new it is a mashup of things you are familiar with but it's a society they created to coexist and you kind of get to discover it along with them yeah so it's nice you know hey if you play tapper great but isn't it also great that that's where everyone comes after yeah, work yeah. to come hang out. <laughs> to get the non-alcoholic root beer. <laughs> yeah. So is there anything else you want to say about Wreck-It Ralph? It's a Disney movie. You're programmed as a human in this society to go see a Disney movie. So you should follow your coding and go watch it. I think it will reward you. It, yeah. is, de- it is definitely up there. It, it comes at the front of that wave when, when Disney animated movies were kind of taking the artistic superiority away from pixar for just a tiny bit pixar's been back up but uh yeah like with tangled and wreck it ralph and frozen like disney was really knocking stuff out of the park and wreck it ralph is is probably a a a big feather in that cap yeah it's definitely something that everybody can enjoy child or adult and still generally get the message out of it if anything the children will be enamored with it just because it's game and fun characters yeah it's colorful bright and it moves it's really well plotted yeah Well, that's Wreck-It Ralph. How about we move over to the Oasis and talk about Ready Player One. This is the Oasis. It's a place where the limits of reality are your own imagination. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do, but they stay because of all the things they can be. I'm here talking to all of you now because our future's being threatened. I just came here to escape, but I found something much bigger than myself. I found my friends. I found love. And now, people have lost their lives. No, 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 no. This is war. We're controlling the future. Find him. Okay, so we we just spent the section, the last section on Wreck-It Ralph talking a lot about how it uses references, and I felt bad because we're very obviously comparing these two movies. So talking about Ready Player One, we should probably address the very first thing that comes up, which is this is a movie with 
tons of references to pop culture from the past two decades, and we obviously have thoughts on the way that it utilizes them. What are your general thoughts on that? Oh, man, I just don't like... No, I I do like Ready Player One, and I I hate it because... Not I hate the movie, but I hate that we're talking about this because Wreck-It Ralph does a lot of great things with references that, for some reason, Ready Player One doesn't. And it has the formula that I would personally say is like, that would work if you're wanting to make a video game adjacent movie, like do what Wreck-It Ralph does. And I feel that Ready Player One kind of tried to do the same thing when it comes to the things that it put into it as far as like characters and such, but it just doesn't work. I almost feel that it's oversaturated to a point, but going back onto what I was saying in Wreck-It Ralph, I feel that a lot of the references, it didn't allow me to think about where it came from. It instead just said, you know, here's a Looney Tunes character. Here's a Gundam. Here's all this other stuff. Maybe you understand some things from the 80s. Do you, do you kind of catch all of these things? Instead of me saying, you know, this was inspired by, you know, this kind of character, or maybe this race was inspired by this game. Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult for me with Ready Player One to figure out intent because some of this stuff feels like there's a a very purposeful message or a, you know a method to the madness but i can't see it beyond just putting it all on there because to me the pleasure of it doesn't stem from like any deep seated message about nostalgia's role in our society it kind of is more just like look at all of the intellectual property we got the rights to because steven spielberg oh, yeah. is friends with everybody uh, here's all your favorite stuff sharing a screen together, which is in its own way very satisfying. The the big final battle, I think, works a lot better than most of these overblown, like, epic showdowns in these types of movies. Like, it's still fairly well executed, and it's a lot of fun. But, you know, what it, what this, this movie's saying about, like, maintaining control of pop culture from corporations, it, it just seems kind of muddled to me. Because corporations gave us pop culture. Exactly that, yeah. <laughs> and, now, and now it's like, the, the movie is, is basically about let's worship the correct one. And, and as much as I kind of want to use that to say, like, this movie sucks because what kind of message is that? I mean, isn't that kind of the message of real life? Choose the right corporation to pledge your allegiance to? <laughs> I mean, in this capitalistic society that we have, kind of. Well, so... I mean, we just talked about it. I'm, I'm a huge Disney fan. I know they're like the most evil corporation in the world, but I will go to all of their movies and I will love most of them. Yeah, it's... I don't know. It almost seems unfair of me to say that, you know, Wreck-It Ralph can have these things, but Ready Player One can't. But it's the same thing. Uh, almost. To me, this might just be my personal reading. Because I, I don't doubt that a lot of love went into both these movies. I'm not trying to say that the, the, people in Rec- the people who made Wreck-It Ralph are more sincere than those that made Ready Player One, but there seemed to be kind of a, a respect and a giddiness to have all these video game characters together in Wreck-It Ralph, like in this place. Whereas in Ready Player One, it does seem to be a commodity more than anything to say, like, you know what's going to get people in seats is if they can see all of this stuff sharing the screen. If they can see a car race where the dude is driving the DeLorean and the obstacles are the T-Rex from Jurassic Park and King Kong. 
which side note, that race is absolutely the best executed oh, action yeah. sequence in the movie. It's oh, amazing. I, love that race. I I think that sequence works really well because that does something similar to Wreck It Ralph. We have a character we're following, goal oriented. All this, all these references from pop culture, those are on the sidelines. Those are obstacles. It works within the scenario of that race. The one I can't totally wrap my head around is the the second quest for the, the quest for the jade key where our heroes have to navigate the shining which to me is a sequence that seems like it's trying to say something about our relationship to nostalgia and whether or not it is beneficial to have such slavish devotion to them because the whole point of the episode is that the shining stuff is a distraction right right doing doing all that does not get you anywhere you have to be looking off into the side room which is its own like a zombie game just within the shining but to me that message is so muddled because that's the overarching thing of the plot right if everyone is racing to get control of these keys to get this easter egg so they control the oasis and when when wade finally gets to the end he passes the test he won't just take the money the avatar of james halliday has to make sure that whoever takes control of the oasis is not going to make the same mistakes as he did which basically boils down to the message of don't turn your back on reality but the way to get there is to love all of the same things that halliday did in the same way that he did and then at the end, it's supposed to be like, hey, all of that, like, don't do that, man. Bad idea. I yeah. Such a mixed message. <laughs> that was such a problem that I had with it of everything leading up to him going into the Halliday Inn Express and then suddenly being told, like, no, you shouldn't want all this money. Like, you should want real life. But real life sucks in this world. It's it's not even just that real life sucks, because that that's a point that could make sense, right? Like. Wade even says it in the beginning that we hit a point where we stopped trying to solve our problems. We just tried to escape from them. So the solution at the end of the movie is we shut the Oasis down on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but nobody makes any on-screen effort to make anything better. They don't. It, you, you're given a kid. So at the beginning or near the beginning of the movie, when Wade meets... I don't remember her name because she's so freaking bland. Not Artemis? H. Yeah, Artemis. There we go. So, Oh, really? I think she's like probably the best character in the movie. Uh, I'll get into why I don't quite care for her. Okay. But uh, so when you, when you first have that, that scene where her bike is broken, H is fixing it. They have their own little get together and they're talking about, um, you know, the game. Like, what are you going to spend your $500 billion on? Maybe I'll get an ice cream or anything. But so, so Wade is saying like, I'm going to buy a whole bunch of nerdy shit and I'm going to get a penthouse. That's essentially what he's going on with. And then Artemis at that point is like, no, why would you do that? You should like get it to, you know, help people and all this other, you know, noble cause stuff. And then at the end of the movie, what do they do? They have $500 billion. They bought a whole bunch of nerdy shit. They got a penthouse. Yeah, they freed people from a loyalty center. But what else did they do with the money? That's $500 billion. They didn't spend like a billion on all the stuff they just bought. It doesn't cost that much. So are they using the rest of the money to actually help the damn world? Or are they just, you know, just going to kind of let it go off and turn off the game and say, now you need to deal with your own problems. I'm not going to help in any way. I mean, we would assume so. I have less of a problem with that and more 
this is my my common complaint with the movie is it's it's always like two thirds of the way through this really interesting idea and then it kind of just fizzles out and says hey here's Chucky which is a fantastic joke. Um, <laughs> the the world the real world in Ready Player One I think is a very timely and interesting concept. It's yeah. overpopulated. It is run by people who do nothing but consume. The Oasis has overtaken the economic world. Everything happens in the Oasis. There's no such thing as a real job anymore. There's apparently no real government. Like, the Oasis has taken over how society functions. So that makes sense. Why would we, why we would spend most of the time in the Oasis? But then the problem is, is the movie is saying, like, no, we need to focus on reality. When the only glimpse of reality we get are the stacks, which is a cool image, and basically nothing else. We understand there's loyalty centers, but here's the other thing about the IOI conflict. This is the same problem I've had. I, I like James Bond movies, but this is a problem I have with a lot of James Bond movies is the, the conflict of a lot of James Bond movies is Spectre cannot be allowed to get this piece of technology because they will have control over the whole world. But for the first two acts of the movie, Spectre has nothing but control over the whole world. <laughs> the movie asks you to believe that, like, if they get this surveillance, it's game over. But the entire rest of the movie, it's like, oh, hey, this place you think that you're hidden and safe, they have seven operatives there, and they know where you're staying and who you are, and they're coming to kill you. So this is my same problem with yeah. IOI, is, is the threat of IOI is that if they win the contest, they're going to put ads up everywhere. Which but they already <laughs> they already have a freaking army. They're everywhere. They have operatives that can track people down that find out their real identities. It's like, okay, things would be marginally worse if IOI wins, <laughs> but like, is it the funny thing about that is like maybe that is the bane of this entire thing is humans hate ads. We don't want to see ads on anything, so but at the same time, if we're if we're thinking about like But they're so what cool. Happen, they're so cool being told by James Halliday what pop culture they should love. Yeah. I, <laughs> and again. But that, that kind of goes back to what you were saying is like choosing the right evil corporation to follow. Right, right. But, but again, that's, that's almost like this complex idea about like who's, who's the good guy. What's the right way to use pop culture? But then it, by making it almost like a straight 80s adventure movie like Spielberg was involved with back then. It, it like undercuts any commentary that it has on this era that it's supposedly drawing from. Like it's this, this movie seems poised to make a comment about why we are so obsessed with eighties pop culture, because we really are like, it's, it's a timely movie because we have things like stranger things and other TV shows that are calling back to all of these movies, like back to the future and ghostbusters and these things that we love. And I'm fascinated by why, we have such affection for this decade that a lot of us weren't even alive for. I think it's an interesting idea, but I don't think that Ready Player One has any thoughts on why we're fascinated with that because it kind of writes everything off as, well, the guy that freed us, the guy that made the Oasis loved it, so we so therefore we, need we to like love it. it. Yeah, maybe that's. I mean, maybe that's what it's saying because this is Spielberg, the guy who made all that stuff for us. Now he's repackaging it, and we're saying, like, you made this, so we love it. He's the holiday that we all want. Uh, I mean, 
I, I'm sounding like I'm taking a giant dump on the movie. I do think it's fun. But like, for the record, I do believe there's a demigod that walks this earth and his name is Steven Spielberg. <laughs> it just it just goes back to what we both have been saying. It's just what's what is the point though of all of it? We we have we have all these 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 pop culture references and we have James Halliday that just absolutely by the way, I loved his character. Oh yeah, yeah Mark Rylance is great. It was, that was it was actually really good. Um and it, I, I hate to be asking the question of if the if these pop culture references weren't in this movie, what would it be like? Because I feel like that's an unfair question to ask. Right. But then if I'm what if Jurassic uh, Park didn't have the yeah, dinosaurs? So what, if, what if Jurassic Park didn't have the dinosaurs? But then you go back and you you're asking the question about Wreck-It Ralph of like, what if Wreck-It Ralph didn't have the references in it? What would it be? The exact same story. But if you're asking that about Ready Player One, it's like, what if Ready Player One didn't have all of these references in it? What is it then? Is it making some sort of social commentary on something, but it seems like it wants to, but then it doesn't? It's an interesting question. Would it would it be as interesting if everything in the Oasis was an original creation? Yeah, an original creation or... Because that's, that's the other thing I love is, is that, uh, I think this is kind of a sly comment on what originality means, but the, the pull of... Or the draw of the Oasis is it's whatever your imagination can handle. Exactly. But no one is creating new pop culture. But here's the here's the funny thing about it though. When you play VR now, like there there are some VR games where you can kind of create your own like avatar or whatever. And people go apeshit with that kind of thing. They create the stupidest stuff, and it's so funny. And then when you when you get ready player one. It's saying that nobody would do that. Nobody would be an absolute goof and just make whatever. That contributes to something about the movie that kind of troubles me. To me, Ready Player One almost sets up like this hierarchy of like what it means to be a true fan of this pop culture. Because the whole quest is about like who knows all of the right stuff about what Holiday, Holiday loves. And like characters weed out like friendships based on this stuff. Like the when when Artemis and Parzival are kind of talking in front of the Iron Giant while H is fixing her bike, they're kind of sizing each other up by being like, what's his 11th favorite horror movie? And things like that. So like, it it kind of says, you know, if Wreck-It Ralph, if we're going to compare the two, is like, be you, like follow the program, but be you. Like Ready Player One almost is trying to control people's identities even more because the only way to be somebody is to prove you know more about this pop culture than anybody else. And I think the movie doesn't doesn't play as dangerous a game. I think the movie more rewards people who know rather than punishes people who don't. Because I I dug it I the first time I saw it because I kind of felt like I was in the inner circle, you know, because we'd go through the Shining stuff and I love that movie. And I get all the references. I'm like, oh, 237, and there's the picture. And this is like a shot-for-shot recreation. This is pretty cool. So I got a little giddy. Like, I'll t- I'll totally own it. It it really works that first time around to be like, I understand this. I feel like I'm a part of something special. I'm a part of a group that's in the know. But the second time around, a lot of that stuff got lost on me. Because now I knew it was coming, and it was like, okay, there's... But that But that's kind of my exact point, is it shoves it in front of you very quickly. And all you really have from it is like, oh yeah, no, I understand that. 
and then it just kind of goes away. And as you're saying, the second time that you see it, you know that it's there, but it doesn't really contribute anything anymore. You don't go back and you watch the movie because of the story. If you're going back and watching the movie, you're you're just watching it for the things that you know about in pop culture. I, I did find the story a little more frustrating the second time around because now that you know, like, the turns it takes, where the clues are, the the movie almost seems like glacially slow. The the stakes really get sucked out of it a lot once you kind of know because it's all centered around a mystery, and mysteries are really hard for a rewatch because the first time you're trying to figure out the answer, and once you know the answer, a really good mystery film has to has to have planted those clues subtly enough that they're noticeable but not obvious. So you know, on rewatches, you can be like, oh, okay, I see, like, this is how they figure that out, and that's very clever, well-written story. But Ready Player One doesn't really have that. It's kind of just like Parzival listens to a clip long enough, and he just draws some kind of connection that comes out of nowhere that leads to the next big thing. So it's not really fun to go along for the adventure a second time after you know what all the jokes are. Yeah, it it was uh, except, and, except the car race and the big fight at the end. Those yes, are still great. Yeah. <laughs> Those were good. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's unfair of me to be looking at it in this way, but I was I was really confused at how IOI has this giant boardroom filled with people that are supposed to be experts on Halliday and everything that he loved. They've got papers freaking flying everywhere. They've got whiteboards up with a whole bunch of stuff, and they're on the same track as uh parsival and artemis but like what it's it's hard for me to believe that a room full of people that have dedicated their study to this is outwitted by two people that are just kind of going through it well and that kind of comes back to what i was saying about like the true fan hierarchy because i think the movie is setting that up as like these people have the knowledge but their heart's not in it Parzival knows it because he's a true believer, but I get frustrated between like, well, what is, what is the, the criteria? Because this is all, this is all consumable, digestible stuff. They've watched the same movies. Like what, what, what is the difference in, in the approaches here? But it's kind of not that way because the first, the first clue, the first puzzle, what didn't have anything to do with really Halliday in general. It was just, you had to drive backwards on a track. And so if you're playing, most people today, if they're playing any game, they're going to goof off. So it's hard for me to believe that in five years, or it was like around five years, whatever, that in five years, nobody just was being an ass and drove backwards. Well, well, again, most people gave up. The only people racing are the mindless corporate drones who have no imagination. I mean, I guess, but they have a room full of people that are supposed to be their imagination. Right, right, right. (laughs) So, So I guess here's the question. Are we are we overthinking this? Because this movie fits into what I find to be a very upsetting idea, but one that is kind of real nonetheless. Are we trying to analyze this too much as a film and not seeing it as a movie? So are you just going to quote uh, Spielberg yeah, this, there? Yeah. yeah, so this is what Spielberg said when he went on stage when the movie was introduced at the South by Southwest Film Festival. And he said, this isn't a film, it's a movie. Which is shorthand for turn off your brain, shut up, and enjoy it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe. But at the same time, don't you want to have a cohesive story no matter what? Here's why I think we're not totally in the wrong. Yes, the movie is designed to be a fun 
kind of turn your brain off blockbuster. Spielberg is very great at making those. My all-time favorite movie is Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is arguably the king of these kinds of movies, not films. Ready Player One <laughs> takes place in a world dominated by consumerism, nostalgia for an era we never lived in, corporate greed, trying to use the digital world to create an image of ourselves we want the world to see versus how we really are. This is founded on a lot of pertinent, timely ideas. I don't think it can get away with just, just enjoy the race, man. It's just a fun, dumb movie. There's too much that seems pointed to comment on reality as we know it today to, to be able to get away with, like, don't think about it. Well, no, that's, that's a great point. I, I very much feel like they were trying to say what we had, our avatars are just like, you know, as you're saying, show people what we want them to see. And I think that they were wanting to say, not everybody is as they seem online. But then they didn't do that. <laughs> because when you saw Artemis, she's exactly how you imagined she would be. Horrifying. I, I mean, just awful birthmark. I mean... Yeah, she was a little pink gremlin. What of it? <laughs> what else no, do you want to talk I'm, about? I'm no, being sarcastic. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm very upset in the, in the movie that she... I'm not saying people who have a birthmark like that could not feel self-conscious about right. it, but but the movie plays it up to such an extreme degree that she's like, if you saw me in real life, you wouldn't you wouldn't stand it. Like, who could ever learn to love a beast? Yeah, and so you're saying that people with like vitiligo or anything like that are just absolute monsters, but yeah. they're not. Yeah, and <laughs> and it doesn't give enough credit because I would dare say most of us know someone with a condition like that. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's not. And like, yeah. I've they, never seen anyone be like, ugh. Yeah. No, the, like, it was probably when they were five and all the other kids don't exactly. know how to not be, like, a good person exactly. yet. But, like, when you get into the real world, nobody freaking cares that you have some birthmark. And hers wasn't even that bad. That, like, it, I think that's one of the reasons why I like H so much is, like, that was the one individual who was not who you would expect it to be. I've seen too what many I've seen okay. too many movies it's the problem like the well, the scene where so, they're where he's like why are you H is telling Parzival like why are you so hyped up she might not even be a girl she might be like this huge dude living in Detroit I'm like oh really H I wonder what you look like in real life yeah by virtue of H being like this big strong or ogre man it's like she's clearly a woman uh, I guess and then, okay. and then the movie is trying to play the game like Guess who this is? Maybe that's that's kind of where maybe it's it's a problem that I like H just because they actually did what they were trying to say. It's like she wasn't who like you right. would really think she was. Whereas like everybody else that you saw outside of it was exactly who you thought they would be. I guess that's a fair point. No, and I, I like H too. I I'm I'm more put off with the movie trying to act like that is this incredibly dramatic reveal. Um, because it makes your protagonist look that much more stupid that he's like, you're a girl. <laughs> yeah. But like, I don't know. I'm sure you could get like a wet sponge that has a little bit more character to it than Wade Watts. He's fine is the thing. I don't, ah. I don't hate him, but yeah, he's, he's pretty bland and it's, it's kind of troubling that his only family is killed in an explosion and he's over it pretty quickly. I would say the movie's trying to use that to comment on like, he doesn't live in the real world, man. But 
that's a pretty good wake up call to start caring about the real world. And like, I don't Which know, is, maybe. No, go ahead. Well, maybe the commentary is we as a society are too used to death now. But I don't know. That's that it doesn't really come up any other time. Yeah. The problem that I have with Wade is when he gives you his backstory, his parents died. And he lives with his aunt, and then he kind of becomes like some sort of superhero in this future world. He's essentially Spider-Man, but for the Oasis. That's kind of what he seems like to me. I don't find that he has any redeeming qualities as a character, because he has no real growth. The only growth that he has as a character is he gets a girlfriend. But he does exactly what he said he was going to do from the beginning. Buy stuff, get a house. Like, nothing he, else. He is loyal. He sticks by his friends. That's like his character trait. But, but is yeah, that enough? He's not, he's not particularly intelligent. <laughs> he's, he's not the best fighter. Like he kind of lugs into a lot of things. To a degree, that's wish fulfillment, right? Like I'm watching this. Uh, I suck at online games. We, we've played online shooters before. I get my ass kicked and you just go ahead without me. <laughs> so it's cool to imprint on this character that's like a nobody that winds up being the hero. A lot of movies are about that, but... I jump ship on it pretty early because as soon as Artemis is introduced, all of a sudden I say like, no, that this should be her. Like she's actually like thinks things through and she's really tough and cool. Uh, that That's why I like Artemis best is I understand she's underserved as a character, but she, she does try to bring the movie's ideas home about like caring about reality. She does. It, it's vague, right? Like I know she, she's part yeah, of this vague, it's... like, rebel cell but she is doing something she does recognize that people are in prison because of because they're in debt like you don't understand what this does to the world you can't just escape in here she, yeah no I, I i can agree that she definitely does more and, and tries to stick to her convictions more than wade does but he doesn't really have any so i guess the bar is low right um and the movie could use that as a critique right but yeah. instead it makes him the guy that wins the prize right I, I think this movie would be a lot better if Artemis or H or somebody was the one that actually made it to Halliday. It, yeah, well... If the, it, if it the would, roles it, were switched, if it, came, if it came out that Wade had to sacrifice himself to get Artemis to the finish line, if he had like that moment of realization, I'd actually be way more on board with the third act of the movie. No, look, yeah, no, I think it would be definitely better if it had played out that way. But... It, so with Artemis, she has her rebellion, or rebellious whatever. She wants to release everybody in the loyalty centers because her dad died yeah. in a loyalty center. He died because he couldn't pay for anything. <laughs> right. Which, like, again, timely. Yeah, it's like, and, you know. Debt ruins lives. And yeah. <laughs> does. And, you know, us white people, we like to be in debt. <laughs> but, so, she definitely has more to go off of. I'm still a little miffed about the whole my parents have died thing again, just because I I wanted more to it than just that. I, I felt that that was just a very quick thing. And like, yes, my father died in this loyalty center. And so I, I can kind of forgive for that. But at the end of the movie, again, they free those in the loyalty center. But what else are they doing? She seemed like she, she had so many like convictions and morals to be doing the right thing, but all she did was, all they did was release these people back into a shitty world. Whereas in a loyalty center, I'm sure they had a place to stay, they had food and everything else, but now they're back out. They have nothing. I mean, and the implication is with all the money in the world, we fix that, right? 
Right. So it, it's shorthand, but to me, the problem is less about like that execution and that like final monologue, which is, I, I agree, it's horribly rushed and kind of leaves you with a bad taste, but I don't think it's as big a problem if this movie could commit, commit to the world building of reality more. Uh, like I mentioned, like we see the stacks and we kind of get the sense that, wow, this is a really dystopian world, but we don't see much of it beyond that. You feel like the government's gone to pot. And then at the end, like the cops just roll up and easily apprehend uh, Sorrento. And it's like, if there were cops this whole time, why didn't they do something earlier? There's obviously a lot of really illegal stuff happening that apparently like their hands aren't even tied because they just cuff him and they haul the bad guys away in a funny little joke where she punches him in the face. That moment rubs me the wrong way because it's like straight out of the those like 80s adventure movies. Well, <laughs> and I just don't think this movie is on that same wavelength. I think it should have aspired to be something a little more than that. Oh, the the other issue with that whole scene of him going forward is everybody that's there in the stacks is it's like it seems like it would be a tight knit community because you're all together in some crappy place. But, you know, he gets there. He doesn't wave his gun just yet. And they're all like, no, we're not going to let you pass. Oh, yeah. You you killed, like, 50 of our neighbors. Yeah, Get like, out of here. You need to leave. And then he pulls out a pistol. And, no, and, like, he walks right next to people. And nobody takes him down. That, that seems completely unrealistic to me. Because, like, when you have that group of people, somebody would have done something. Right. They wouldn't have just let him get <laughs> to the door. Especially if a lot of their friends and neighbors had been murdered and they knew this was the guy that did it. Exactly. And and what is it that turns him away? He has like the gun on Wade and he sees the Easter egg. And I I guess it's like, well, the game's over, like he's won. But the, the it's shot in such a way that he's like in awe of the Easter egg. Like he finally understands. But but I don't feel like he would. No, I, I don't either. I don't, I don't feel like it's earned not. either. Because that's that's the thing is everyone's motivation is so muddled to me that that Artemis wants to win the contest because she wants to make a difference and Parsifal kind of wants to win it because no one should be allowed to ruin this thing he loves. Yeah. It's tricky. I don't know. It's it's funny. The more you talk about it, the more it sounds like we hate it. But I went I went a second time. I had a a fine time. The action sequences in it are tons of fun it is really impressive to see just how many intellectual properties they could cram into one movie it's not easy to get the rights to this stuff so it that in itself is kind of a feat but the problem with that is is admiring that feels a little bit like you're being like i'm being a corporate stooge yeah no i which the movie is telling you not to be but it's complicated yeah it's telling you to be a corporate stooge in the right way I really do enjoy the movie because it is fun. The racing scene that they have is phenomenal. The battle at the very end is great. The only way that they could have made the battle at the end even better is instead of an iron giant and they had the transformers there and then like Optimus Prime points and it's like, Autobots transform and kick that man's ass. <laughs> and so it would have been better if they did it that way. Yes, that actually probably would have been pretty in spirit with the humor. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of all this, I do have to say like we've had a pretty lively half hour discussion, which a lot of movies don't really support. So I give the movie credit for that. But to me, it's almost aggravating because a lot of this discussion comes off of what it does not do rather than what it does. Yeah, I, I do think I agree. That's the most aggravating thing is 
I feel that it could have done so much better that that's why I'm annoyed with it. It, it, it takes every, every sort of formula that I feel could have made it fantastic, much like it did with Wreck-It Ralph, but this, the way that it executes upon it is subpar. Yeah. And I, I gotta admit, like, I get the feeling like this, this could have actually been really, really bad. I think this exact same concept in the hands of a director who is not as confident as Steven Spielberg, this really could have had, like, no redeeming qualities. Probably. <laughs> he's, he's, he's excellent. Like, we've, we've talked the praises of the action sequences, but I think he's excellent at getting you through, like, enough of a plot that even if it isn't entirely satisfying, when you pick it apart, it does at least work surface level. Yeah, and like, as we've said, it is fun. It is genuinely fun to watch. What I find impressive is that he's an old guy, but he still can pull off something that's this epic and has this much scale. Um, you know, he hasn't really aged out. He helped pioneer CG with Jurassic Park, and now he's he's taking kind of the, the Avatar ball and running with it of here's an entirely digital world. And I think the Oasis is a pretty convincing environment. Um, the ideas which it's founded upon aren't super well fleshed out, but... You know, all the, all the things like the, the gravity-free dance hall, the shining thing, the, um, the holiday archives or whatever it is. Like, that's all, that's all really cool stuff to visit. Yeah, I would agree. I, so I, I think the book itself references more, more 80s things than it does, like, more recent stuff that the movie references. Mm. So I'm wondering if Steven Spielberg just, like, kind of pulled an intern aside that's in his 20s or whatever and said, hey, what do you like that happens nowadays <laughs> and we can just throw it into the movie? Well, the thing is that intern would just be like, whatever you do. <laughs> and, and again, like, Spielberg, Spielberg is the right fit for this story, right? This is a movie about all this stuff from the 80s we grew up loving. Yeah, he he's pioneered, the, like, he's most the guy of it. that made most of it. Yeah. Like if he if he didn't directly create it, he was involved somehow. That's a a cool thing that I think that was a good decision to cast to put him in as director. But also, you know, you think he would have more to say about like his position as the creator of all this stuff. You, I, I would feel like you would see a lot more of Spielberg in Halliday, and I don't think it comes through. Yeah, maybe he should have had a because I don't, himself. I don't necessarily know if Spielberg would be like, don't waste your time watching all these movies. Reality is real. <laughs> no, he very much would have uh, like, come watch more of my stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated movie. or it's a, it's a movie that brings up some very complicated feelings. I don't hate it. I don't think it's totally stupid. It just, it's so close to me. It, it comes so close to having these ideas about everything that makes up its world. And I just feel it kind of ditches them to be like, do you like the shining us to check this out? Yeah, definitely. I think if, if they handled the references differently, and it, it goes back to what I've said multiple times. Now they handle it in a way of you needing to think about what was inspired rather than what it is. Mm -hmm. It could have been better. Right. Not it, make, not make it the star of the show. Make your, right. Make your main plot more interesting. No, absolutely. Because like, if if you have, there are multiple shows that take references from, you know, like The Breakfast Club is actually a great example. There are a lot of shows where they do the dance that they've done in, I believe it was the library. It was like it's not directly shoving like Bref Breakfast Club into like your viewing pleasure, but it's just like if you know what it is, you're like, oh hey look, you know they have the dance. It's inspired by it, and so on and so forth. 
Well, that's just what we think of it. We vote at Cinetrust, so we still recommend this to people who are looking for a good time at the movie theater, but maybe we're totally off base. Maybe this movie is amazing and we're missing the point. So uh, whatever your thoughts on Ready Player One or Wreck-It Ralph are, uh, remember that you can reach out to us on any social media platform. You can email us cinemust at gmail.com or leave comments on our website. But most importantly, do not forget to go to cinemust.com, find the episode 13 post, and vote on the musty status of these movies. Maybe you feel like they both need to be seen by everyone. Maybe you think that nobody should see either of them. That poll is going to be open until midnight on June 2nd, so you've got two weeks to check the movies out, let us know your thoughts on them, and we will read off the results of that poll on our next episode to find out if they truly are must-see movies or not. Jeff, thanks a ton for coming out and lending us your video game expertise. Thanks so much for having me on. A lot of fun. No problem. We hope to have you and your beautiful radio voice back. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope that you'll come back for our next episode. Uh, Next episode, we are going to get institutionalized with my lovely wife, Amanda. We are going to be talking about the Shawshank Redemption and Cool Hand Luke. So I hope we don't fail to communicate how much we love those movies. That's a bit of a spoiler. It's going to be a very positive episode. But until next time, everybody, thanks for playing. (laughs) 